Kiora, and welcome to this, our second to last podcast in the intriguing series, People, Places and the Climate Crisis. Well, not quite the second to last, but the second to last in the series of interviews with outstanding climate experts, because after that, we have some on mayoral interviews in the Nelson Tasman region. Anyway, I'm Lindsay Wood, and I'm from the Resilience Climate Trust, and we're running this series in conjunction with Fresh FM, the top of the South's community access radio station. At the end of the podcast, I'll give you details of other ways you can listen. But now it's time for this interview with the director of the Zero Carbon, Nelson Tasman, Dr. Olivia Hyatt. Olivia is the second of two guests on the theme, Joining the Dots, Everything is Connected, because, of course, we had Miriana Stevens of Wakatu Incorporation with us last time. So here is the conversation with Olivia Hyatt. I do hope you enjoy it. Olivia Hyatt is one of those interesting people that has one foot planted in the science of climate change and the other planted firmly in its very human dimensions. With a PhD in geology and past climate change and with her being a director of Zero Carbon Nelson Tasman, it might surprise some people that Olivia is also co-coordinator of Parents for Climate Aotearoa. But that's not really such a big stretch when we recognise that there is likely no stronger motivation for engagement in climate issues than the future well-being of our own children and grandchildren. Kia ora, Olivia. I think that great spread of skills and passions makes you eminently suited to discuss today's theme, joining the dots, climate is connected to almost everything. Thank you so much for joining us on this series and a very warm welcome. Kia ora, Lindsay. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a great pleasure, a great pleasure. You and I have had a few discussions on making climate strategies more effective, and the same issues often rise to the top, the need to be more holistic and better integrate what is often a pretty siloed approach, and the imperative to give more weight to the people-oriented strategies as against the more physical and, dare I say, male ones. Would you please give listeners a bit of a helicopter view of these issues and offer some advice to would-be councillors on how they could make a difference in these important areas? That's a great question. Um, I think we really need to focus more on people here in climate change and how we are all too often missing what people need to support climate action. So for you and me, Lindsay, we've been immersed in climate change for many, many years, um, and we have mm. a pretty good picture of climate change. You know, we, we know there's a lot of information and the science is really clear that um, with the crisis that we that we are facing. For most people, though, I think, you know, they've, conf- they've got their climate information over a long period of time um, from a range of different so- sources They've inter- and these sources sort of interpret the science um, mm. with various levels of spin from all sorts of sources, from like traditional media, radio, documentaries. So the picture is quite different for a lot of people. And mm. I think all too often it's actually not connecting them themselves personally and their place to this big crisis that we're in. So I've been thinking about it. It's almost like for many people, it's like having a half-completed puzzle. And there's a lot of the important pieces are still in the box. Um, And it's also a really big puzzle. 
and um, many of the pieces look quite similar. So it's one of those really tricky mm-hmm. ones. And maybe um, a puzzle whose picture we're not familiar with as well. Yeah, and, and to add to that challenge, the picture on the box that we rely on is actually a bit blur- blurry. Yeah, so it just makes yeah. it extra tricky. And we don't really talk about this puzzle to anyone else, the trouble we're having. And if we don't finish it, something really, really bad is going to happen. So we're kind of stuck with these mixed feelings of frustration, worry, guilt, fear, and more. What an interesting <laughs> metaphor, Olivia. Keep going. <laughs> so that fuzzy box picture is kind of like the climate information and government policies on climate change. Mm. It's actually quite hard to understand in the form that it's in. So in scientific language, it's you know pretty technical, and it's, it just isn't often described in a way that directly connects to people and their mm. place. Yeah. Um, and it's not talked about, actually, not nearly enough, especially by people we trust in our everyday lives. So there's a quite, I think there's still quite a lot of confusion about climate change. Mm. And we are too often, I think, left with an incomplete picture of how we got here um, and what the impact is on us now in our communities. And not just the stereotypical examples of mountain glaciers and heat waves on the other side of the world. Mm. We really care about, most people care about these things and by these events, but they're actually quite a lot. They're a long way from us and there's a lot of them. So mm. it's, it's human nature to be motivated, I think, more by the immediate impacts on ourselves and our community and what's personal to us. So we need to find these buried puzzle pieces that makes the picture clearer for us and importantly puts us in the picture where we are in this puzzle. One of the people I think that is great at explaining this is Catherine Hayhoe. So she's a climate scientist and an author, an author of a great book called Saving Us, which came out last year. And, and I recommend I've listened to her. She narrates her and she narrates an, an audiobook of this oh, book. Right. Well. Oh, fabulous. And she's got a great positive attitude and it's really uplifting. So I recommend listening to it because that's what I've done when I was painting my house over the summer. So I will try and get a link to that that we can post on our website with yeah. to that because it, it, that'll go on my list of listening books anyway. It's, it's, books. One of, it's, it's probably my favourite climate book. Fantastic. Oh, it's that's anti- a great le- reference. It's, it's anti-doom. Mm, yeah, it's looking good. at what we can do and looking at why things haven't changed, why mm. we haven't addressed the, the crisis. So she talks about the ripple effects of just having conversations and connecting climate change, its impacts, to ourselves, to our communities, mm-hmm. why we should be concerned about it, and also at the same time, what we can do about it. So wow. we need to make this personal. I think often, you know, this is a big, complex problem. And I think we can be paralysed by that, but also I think we can flip it around and say that in the complexity lies so many possibilities. There's oh, so good. many yep. options for change. Hmm. For me, that's what motivates me, and that's where I find hope, because I just see so many possibilities. And by trying to understand how the choices we've made and and the people over the last plus 100 years have made on our social, um, our economic and our government structures that we've put in place, and how many of our social and environmental issues have in common, common causes, I think if we look at all the choices we've made collectively in humanity over the last 100 years, and we look at what our social and economic and government structures that we've put place over the past years, they've also changed quite a lot over the last Mm, years, mm. over the last 100 plus years. 
So I think if we're trying to understand the complexity, I think we can we can find through there a lot of cho potential choices that we can make. You know, we have over the last hundred years made a lot of choices that have got us to where we are now, and so we can actually change that. You know, it does not have to be mm. overwhelming. I think if most people know that big changes are coming, you know, even though they've got an incomplete um, puzzle finished, we've, it's pretty clear that things are not going on a good track. I think most people understand that at mm. some level and are feeling pretty unsettled and scared. And I think, you know, knowing that fossil fuels are the driving cause of climate change, I think thinking that living without fossil fuels is actually pretty scary and daunting. What does yes. that look like? Mm. We don't have enough narratives and stories of what the future could look like. So I think we end up filling in with lots of bad things because there's a there's a hole there in, mm. in our imaginations. And so we think things like, you know, do we have to go back to what it was like over 100 years ago? You know, I don't know about yes. you, but I don't actually don't want to go back to living what it was 100 years ago. You know, it wasn't that great for women and girls, for starters, and many other people. Mm. And it just, you know, the energy that we had back then compared to now. You know, I, I, I don't want anyone to take away my washing machine. You know, the burden of labour. No, that's right. Potentially in that kind of scenario is is not, it doesn't, it's not attractive. Take your horse and cart into the supermarket. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, there's, there's, it's it's not all doom, but, you know, there. I think if we, we, we think carefully about these, these narratives that are out there, there is a lot of doom and gloom. And so I think we need some better narratives and visions of mm. what life could be like now and into the future. And I think crucially, it's not about um, how how what we've got to do now is to make things less worse, because that's what I hear all the time. It's like, we've got to try and make this less worse in the future mm. for our kids. I, you know, I, don't, I don't think that's good enough. You know, I, I, that doesn't motivate me at all. What's the point in some ways? So for me, it's about making it a better place for us and our future generations, because I think there's so many... Um, possibilities to improve people's lives and um you know halt the warming um so for me it's bringing it back to people and the connections here which also allows us to look at the problems at a local level at a human scale which also helps to reduce that overwhelming feeling and also gives us the ability to see positive changes that we make locally mm. around us and immediately mm. you're you're in very good company with the, your comments about just making it less worse is not good enough. I mean, James Shaw, the Minister of Climate Change, opened this and he was saying we have to remember we can get to a good place if we get all this right. And James Renwick, the Climate Commissioner, was saying much the same as well as one or two others. So good on you for reinforcing that message because I think it's very important and it's a good message for me as well. I sometimes get into the, the sort of left brain, oh, my God, sort of space. What? Yeah, and the science, you know, that's that's my a big part of my, um, I suppose, my view on this is the science doesn't support the doom and gloom. You know, I, I like how James Renwick keeps on saying it's not about there's a, there's, a, there's one point we get to and we're all stuffed. You know, yes. we can always make things better than, than the path that we're on, and I think that's really important. The, the theme that James Renwick was, was talking on was actually envisaging the future. Yeah. And... I had posed that rather expecting him to 
be portraying all the awful things that were ahead. But one of his comments was, we must remember that there are really good futures we can envisage too. And I, I was sort of reassured by that. The councils have a key role in this because they are like a hub. They are like a mini interconnected system. <laughs> and, you know, they hold all this history in their region of all the changes that's yeah, happening. Yeah, good point. They have to also look into the future and plan. Um, they know what's going on in their communities, mm. often when businesses and the community's needs. Um, and they also have the role of caretaker, really, of our communities and our mm. ecosystems. So they can be that, that, that key source of, and they are a key source of accessible information, but also holding those positive and promoting those positive visions of looking mm. at things. If we do this, we need to do this a whole lot of these things because of the impacts that's happening to our communities and around the world. If we also do this, we're also going to improve our communities' lives, like, you know, all those that cycling infrastructure. It's not mm. about taking away car, car, car space. It's been able to adding choice and looking at win-wins for the health mm. of our community. Yeah, very, very interesting. And quite a few people have portrayed councils as being where the implementers of many aspects of government policy, but you put another dimension there, and that was that in a way they're the keepers of the knowledge or one of the keepers of the knowledge as well, aren't they? If I may, I'd like to move on to another aspect of integrative thinking, and that's where there are unintended consequences to climate strategies. And I just give an example that might be setting up, say, an electric vehicle charging network that suits the wealthier owners of longer range vehicles that penalises poorer people who are more likely to have shorter range vehicles. If you are able to direct the local councils in seeking to minimise these pitfalls, and I'm not talking just about electric vehicles, but in principle, what would you suggest they do differently or in addition to what they're doing at present, please, Olivia? Yeah, I think this is really important. I think it's important for all parts of our society with climate change, both how we mitigate and adapt to climate change. I think, firstly, the councils need to start working harder, and I know a lot of them have been working hard on understanding climate change and all aspects of it. So they're mm. climate puzzles, basically. And, you know, and don't leave it up to one small climate team. Mm. You know, everyone in councils, the staff, all through to the elected officials need a decent understanding of climate change. And I think a lot of them have been on a big learning curve this last electoral cycle, but I think there's still more work to do. And that's connecting. They need to also connect climate change to what they do in councils as well and why it's important in their work. And mm. then also bringing on what how this is impacting people in the communities in positive and negative ways. I think we also really need more systems thinking. Can you just elaborate on what you mean by systems thinking? Well, that's that's not just having things, having different departments doing their own things, looking across the whole system. Mm. So, you know, it's not, and it's not just a physical thing, you know. So, you know, a classic example would be building a seawall in one part of the coast has unintended consequences down the coast because it changes the mm. sediment movement and the wave energy and you can end up erosion. Yeah, okay. Classic example of a physical system, but they've also got a lot of social systems here. And so, and I, for example, you know, most urban areas are looking to increase its density, right? Which is a really good reason mm. for lots of good reasons, like reducing travel and protecting agricultural land. Mm. How we do that is really important. 
So a quarter of our population is disabled, which is a lot of people. And people with disabilities have a huge range of different needs, where they live and how they get around. So for good outcomes for disabled people while we're densifying our cities and towns, they need to be there right at the start and mm. planning and changing mm. our towns and cities. So then there are so many different needs in our communities and to improve people's lives at the same time as um, tackling the climate crisis, I think the councils need to centre them more in these decisions and partner them right from the start and mm. how we plan, you know, to, to build that more complete picture. Another rife area, big area for potential unintended consequences is adaptation. Um, this has been a big issue, I think, in an area of contention with lots of councils and climate advocates around the country mm-hmm. and the decisions they make. You know, And despite the overwhelming evidence of changing risks and the need to plan and make decisions differently, the inertia up until now of business as usual and how we make decisions has been pretty strong. You know, that sort of short-term decisions of a build, build it now and we'll protect it and adapt later kind of mentality. Mm. I think we're getting to the point, I think there's a tipping point that's changing, but it's been very difficult to sort of engage with councils on that, partly because of the structural systems that they're set up and, and a lack of government, government support and direction. But I think this is one of those areas where we need to be more future-focused and do mm-hmm. the responsible thing, even though this is really hard. Adaptation is, I think, much harder than climate mitigation, mitigation in many ways. When you say future-focused, um, Olivia, if I can dial back, are you meaning sort of long-term thinking and stuff like that? Long, long-term thinking and centering our kids and our grandkids mm. and the impacts on them. Great. Because if we keep making decisions like we have done, mm. they're the ones that are going to, have to deal with these consequences and we always have to remember that you know we need to reduce our emissions so that means we have a reducing carbon budget and we're not quite sure what how the energy is going how much energy we're going to have in the future so mm-hmm. rebuilding big sea walls might become really really tough we just we don't know so we, we I think we just need to be a lot more careful and deliberate about how we make these decisions and try and think about what possible repercussions there could be in the future, not just now. As you were talking, it brought to mind what I think is, I'm sure you know, the wonderful intergenerational strategy of our local um, Bokatu Incorporation and being good ancestors is an anchor concept in there, isn't it? Yeah, and, and that, I think it's it's a wonderful a wonderful document and that, and that pulls in, you know, the Te Ao Māori worldview values Mm. and I think all too often you know we see these values being put in at the top of document the start of documents and council and government but actually they're not woven in all the way through and when you get to the crucial part which is the decision making they're not really there it's still Mm. traditional how we make decisions to make decisions in the past and I think that's a really key thing moving forward too for reducing the amount of unintended consequences because we will have some because we can't foresee everything. We're not going to get things perfect. But we do need to look about how we make these decisions and what we value. And I think, you know, who we have at the table making these decisions, who we we talk Mm. to, who we take into consideration is really important. And I think one of the ways that we can start to do that is think about the impacts on our future Mm. generations. I know we're both interested in trying to reduce divisiveness over climate issues and to encourage constructive discussions 
between people with differing views. I don't know if you saw in stuff this morning, and for listeners, this is being recorded on the 30th of June. In stuff this morning, there was an article on the ongoing discussion in the Nelson Tasman region on the T Waikora Pupu Springs, the Pupu Springs, and the judge was reprimanding the experts for not listening and not being constructive. He said, please listen, looking for understanding, not looking for a reaction. And in fact, you've given what I found a lovely description of one of your own ambitions, and that is to be a bridge across such divides and opinions. I'd love you to elaborate on that powerful concept and give listeners a sense of why it's so important. Yeah, this is, this is pretty close to my heart. I think I think we need to start with the fact that, you know, we're not inherently good or bad as individuals. You know, we do the best with the information we have. You know, we have biases and, you know, our confirmation bias is pretty strong. Mm. You know, and largely we follow social norms because and, it, it's um, easier. Sorry to interrupt you, but... There are lots of biases. Confirmation bias, correct me if I'm wrong, is where we welcome things that agree with our existing viewpoint. Is that yes, right? That's correct. We largely follow the social norms in our culture. You know, that's mm. how we've been brought up. And I think having that as a backdrop to try and get the climate change messages across, I think there's a tendency towards simplistic messages, you know, and good and bad narratives because they're mm. a bit easier. You can put them out in bite-sized chunks and it's kind of easy to go with the headline, headline right? Yeah, good point. And I, and I think with the growing urgency of the crisis, many activists and advocates are pushing harder and harder with this approach because we're really worried. Mm. You know? mm. And it's a natural it's a natural thing to do. And I, you know, and the, the challenge is though so much of this is fear-based and, and I get it. At the same time, though, I also know that through experience myself and spending a lot of time with the amazing Alicia Hall, who has a background in social science and also is the founder of founder of Parents for Climate Aotearoa, that this fear-based messaging all too often has the opposite effect to what's mm. intended. Mm. So a small number of us are motivated somewhat by fear and doom. Though most of us aren't, and often it has the opposite effect, and we sort of end up turning away from it, trying not to think about it, and that's a normal human, a normal human and natural response. Mm. And it's a protective response to kind of look after ourselves. Yeah, yeah. And you know, mental health is a huge topic. It's a big topic we talk about a lot. Appearance for climate out here, and I just don't think it's talked about enough. Okay. Um, and how we talk about climate change, how talk, how climate change is talked about in the in the media a lot is is having an impact and I think particularly for our young people it's really problematic mm. so with so there's a lot of mixed feelings I think that people have about climate change some of them are weird and some of them we're just not really wanting to deal with and so I think this tendency to oversimplify such as cars bad bikes are good is also fueling some culture wars and actually creating more division in our, in our communities. Mm, and mm. I think it's also getting more extreme, partly because of that urgency. You know, we, you know, we're really worried. And so these narratives are also slightly changing, and I think they're also getting more extreme. You know, from a couple of years ago, it was all about eating less meat. Mm. Now, there's, now there's this push to eating no meat, you know. Mm. There's also that, as we talked about before, if we don't sort it out, climate change, by the end of this decade, we're all stuffed. 
you know? <laughs> so there's this overall kind of simplifying things, and it really does my head in, and I actually see the impacts on people who are not, you know, really into really into the climate space, the negative impacts this have on people. And I think this over-simplistic um, messaging and the fear-based messaging, I think, can dominate. And I think if we're not careful, it's going to further erode our social cohesion. And I, what I really worry about is that that will increase resistance to the vital changes we need, so lead to more unintended consequences. Mm. It's also well known, isn't it, that the, the media thrive on negative messaging of alarmist things rather than positive news. Um, yeah. Well, all... we have an adversarial political system as well, which feeds into True, well. yeah, very good so point. I, I think we need, you know, we need to take a breath here, you know, and we need to be a bit more open and curious. Uh, and I, I don't think the blaming and shaming people is actually working. Mm. You know, we're a little mm. bit of pressure is important, but I think we're going too far. And I think... And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't, you know, hold people account and organisations to account of what's not happening. I think we absolutely should. I think it's more about how we go about and have these discussions. Mm. Um, I think way too much of the narratives, unfortunately, that are getting through to people dehumanise people. And it's just adding more barriers to action throughout our country. And so I think we do, as climate activists and advocates, need to think a bit more about the words we use and the framing we use, and particularly how this is received for our young people. Mm. Um, and remembering that we don't have to agree on everything. You know, <laughs> there's such a wide range of possible solutions, and so there's room to compromise. Mm. I think, yeah, so... This really worries me about climate change. Um, and I think we're seeing this division, you know, it's particularly around cycling infrastructure. There's quite a lot, you know, in the media, it's very sort of for and against. There's very mm. little in between and nuance there in these discussions. Yes. And I think that, that worries me a lot. And I think. I don't think we have a social license yet for the massive social and economic transformation we need to um, tackle the climate crisis. So what I mean by bridge is people who can hold opposing views and can yeah. see the different perspectives from different groups and can empathise with people, you know, sees them as good people trying to do their best, you know, has they have relatable life experience and can be trusted by different groups of people and look to find the common ground. So I think lots of us have this potential. You know, most of us mix the many lots of different groups and activities, you know, parents, workplaces, recreation activities, you know, there's lots of places we can do that. We just have to, you know, centre that people are trying to do the good thing. And agriculture is a big part of my identity. So I grew up on a farm, you know, a mixed horticulture, sheep and beef, and with forestry as well. Mm. So it, it's a big part of my identity. And after, you know, I left the farm, I went to university and I went on to study geology and past climate change. And then after that, I did some research for a few years looking at current climate change and the health effects of climate change. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, after I had kids, I sort of got into advocacy more. And so I've spent a lot of the last three years spending a lot of time on climate change. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I've also become more involved in my family farm again. So we have been getting involved in 
uh, catchment groups. So we've oh. got a few different areas of land in, in the region that we're at, some of which is in pasture and some horticulture and quite a bit some forestry. And so I've been spending a lot of time in these catchment groups and these volunteer groups, mm. um, being there on the ground, talking to farmers, seeing farmers, and, and, and sort of understanding where they're at. So I, I actually see a huge disconnect between these, although they're often called opposing opposing worlds, aren't they? Climate mm. a, a, activists and advocates and farmers, mm. you know, that's portrayed as kind of a either-or kind of thing. Yes. Um, and I I can hold those two in my head, you know. I, I hold the, the big frustration as a climate scientist and advocate. I'm mad at the agriculture industry and leaders that have delayed mm. fought against climate action for so long, you know. Yeah. I feel... I, I'm really frustrated by that. I also, um, at the same time, hold the overwhelm of all the change that's coming at farmers right now. Mm. Now, The feelings of constantly being attacked. As advocates, climate advocates, we might not think that we're saying when we're talking about dirty daring and stuff, we're talking about the industry, but farmers internalise that. They they, they take that as a personal attack. Mm. and they're feeling this a lot of blame, blame and shame. And there's this sort of this feeling of a lack of perceived understanding by urban people of what it takes to produce food and fibre. Hmm. So I feel I feel these kind of I feel that angst and pain for all sides. Um, and at the same time, there's so much common ground. And hmm. that's the thing. Like I think you know this too, Lindsay, is most people care. And you know, we're all worried. Right? And rural, our rural communities yeah, are the ones who totally. are already adapting mm. to climate change. Mm. Right? I grew up, you know, my father was a black currant farmer. We don't grow black currants anymore. It's too warm in winter. Mm. Right? Most farmers seen the change and they're yes. already dealing with the impacts. Um, and, you know, urban people have been a little bit protected from that mm. just by where, 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 they, where we uh, are. It's interesting you say that, Olivia, because I think in, in, in some ways the the agricultural sector is actually several steps further down the track of dealing with these issues than the other sectors. You know, I'm, I've written about the construction sector needing to learn what the ag sector has learned, you know, <laughs> rather than bag them. Sorry, carry on. I'm with you on that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And absolutely, there's a heap of work to do. Mm. And there are, there have been some really bad impacts from some of the farming practices we have. And they haven't just happened, you know, they've taken decades to to get to where we are. Um, But I also see a huge amount of time and energy put into our rural communities um, to try and do the right thing. You know, Mm. trying to build back and restore biodiversity and waterways. You know, there's millions of native trees being planted every year. Mm. And the planting is the easy bit. It's the looking after them and keeping those trees alive. That's a lot of work. I know, yeah. we've been planting quite a lot with my family. Mm. You know, and, and we also have to remember that farmers are like everyone else. You know, they don't have a complete puzzle picture either. Mm. You know? So there's there's those kind of things that are really important. So I can see there's a lot of things that need to happen, but I can also see that people need help, just like people in urban urban areas need help if mm. they want to um Take the take take the bike sometimes. Yeah, get off their cars or something. Yeah, most people don't feel safe. Mm, you know, that's because right. This, you know, especially for kids, 
Mm. You know, trying to get the kids to school, it's without a car. In some places, it's it's risky. Mm. So I think we just need to, we need to listen, as you said, Lindsay. You know, listen to each other, like the, the story in Golden Bay. There's so much we could, there's so much common ground and so many potential mm. solutions if we we listen to each other more about where we're coming from. We may not agree on everything, but there is this push for big, simplistic, top-down solutions, right? Do this mm-hmm. and it'll be fine. Yes. But you yeah. know that, you know, rural farms are complex systems and you change one thing and can have unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. But that also means that there's lots of possibilities at the same time to do a lot of good too. Um, so it's... Farmers are also stuck a little bit in a system like we are. We need some help to change. There's 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 some things that farmers can choose to do and should absolutely choose to do, just like people who are able to in cities should do. But there's also things that need to happen in a systematic way to enable them to help to change, like uh-huh. that information. And just adding another layers of of tick boxes they need to do. I've seen this, what often comes, you know, the emissions training scheme is a classic example that it is just not user-friendly mm. for, for individual farmers to use. So we just need to think carefully. It's not that we shouldn't do things, it's how we do it. And I think we need to work with people rather than just tell them what to do. My mm. kids don't like being told what to do. Neither <laughs> do adults. No. You, know, you want to work, you want to be collaborative, you want to feel like you've been listening to and you feel like you have a say. And I think that's really important. Mm. So I think I think we need to have more of these types of conversations, two-way conversations. We work about how can we do this together, not just you have to change, mm. you're bad, you know, these sorts of things. Like how can we do this together, like we did with COVID? Yeah. Oh, fascinating. So much food for thought there, Olivia. Um, as you were talking, it brought to mind I was at the Agricultural Climate Change Conference in Wellington last year, and there was an Aussie specialist, uh, Mark Howden, on disaster and agriculture and one of his phrases was if we don't do the um the climate things ourselves we will have them done to us and in a way that's what you're saying let's take ownership and and it's not the right thing to impose this from above it's actually a thing where if we take ownership and and are active in that then we'll make more progress on it yeah, oh. I, I think that's important. I think we do need some bottom, you know, we do need some bottom lines, though, because, yeah, and I think it is really important that we have some clear bottom lines. We need to have some good legislation that says what isn't okay. Mm. And I think that's really important. It's just we'll get so much further if we have that plus we work together. So it's not an either or. It's not just the industry you know, polices itself, it's mm. we all have this responsibility to do it. And I think we focus on that, we get a lot further. Oh, I've got so many follow-up questions, but we have to keep moving, unfortunately. <laughs> Maybe I'll get you back for another interview. Um, I don't know if public consultation fits in your area of concern, Olivia, but it seems rather a damned if you do and damned if you don't situation on both the council side as well as that of submitters. Um, I've heard 
a claim given for somebody that suggested it should be called insultation rather than consultation because it never seems to make any difference. And on the other side, councils and citizens seem to invest huge amounts of energy into countless processes that I've actually heard it called death by submission. Where do you see such processes as offering strengths and weaknesses in the quest for an integrative and inclusive approach? Yeah, a meaning of life question for you. <laughs> I think I have a lot to say about consultations as well. You know, I have submitted to local councils and central government a lot over the last few years, both mm. individually and through a few different organisations. And I can relate to all those views you've just outlined in many ways. Mm. Yes. Um, I suppose you could come at why, why do we have consultation? Is it a good thing? And I think, yes, it is. But again, it's the how, how we do it. Mm. Now, councils need to have good interaction and input from their communities to function well, you know, and, and good consultation is part of that. Mm. And councils do have it pretty tough. You know, they have to implement, as you said earlier, central government legislation, and I more keeps coming all the time, and they have limited resources, mm. and they're not trusted by everyone in their community. So, they're, you know, they're the face, really, of bureaucracy in New Zealand. So they do mm. get a lot of flack. But they also do have a responsibility to their communities to do the best they can with what they have. I think there's just a heap of barriers to participation at the moment. Um, and I think it starts with good information, as I talked about earlier. You know, we just, so much of the information is pretty technical. I think the councils are doing better mm. than central government, but I don't think it's always aimed at in a range of ways that actually meets the needs of people to get participated. So you get similar responses from similar people. Mm. Um, now, I have a PhD and it takes me a lot of time to go through some consultations. I'm sure you find this too, Liz. Oh, exactly. And I can. Mm. And, you know, I have I sometimes reading some paragraphs a number of times to understand what they're trying to say. And then it cross-references um, another document oh, that you've got to go to, and this yeah. is just as bad, isn't it? And, and for I think a really classic example is the recent adaptation plan from the government. I don't know if you spent much time on that, Lindsay. Not as much but as I'd like to have. That was just really hard going. Mm. So I spent a lot of time um, co-leading a, a submission for, with for parents for climate Aotearoa. And we're trying to focus, you know, on people, on the kids there and what mm. people need. And so you get you get, it's just a really hard document to go through. It's not actually accessible. It's super long. There was so many questions. Mm. And you get basically um, lines like this. So I'm going to quote one from page 65 right. to give you an example of the type of language that is out there. So limited knowledge or understanding of climate change risks, potentially a consequence of limited access to information, can result in maladaption and path dependency, as well as constrained adaptive capacity, further exacerbating in inequality. <laughs> now, I had to read that a few times. <laughs> That's I a total, total self-contradiction, isn't it? It's <laughs> saying we need good information and it, it explains it with bad information. Pretty much. You know, so and that that's the type of language you you are often said. This is mm. mostly at the government level. I think the councils are generally a lot better than that, but not always. So it's it's just it's hard. Mm. I can I just interrupt you there briefly because you you asked me before had I engaged much with the the adaptation plan? Yeah. 
And I think it exactly illustrates one of the other things we're talking about in this question, and that is the reason that I hadn't is that I had one submission a week for about four weeks on different things, and I just thought something's got to give, and that was what gave, even though it's very, very important. Yeah. So that's, yeah, again, that death by submission process, isn't it? Yeah, I can't. I, I do. I try and do one every couple of months because I yeah. just can't. Can't do, unless they're small ones, but that doesn't it doesn't have to be that way, mm. you know. Like, um, and I think what you end up with is you end up with people just not engaging mm. and not even reading, really reading legislation when it comes out. And so, especially with these contentious issues, you know, like the Three Waters is a classic example. Mm. You get people with certain agendas who who will promote can can promote their spin a lot easily because it's just hard to get that information you know a great example was that recently there was a groundswell event down in southland on the three waters and rnz was there and they asked some of the organizers there had you read the legislation not one of the organizers there had read the legislation but they were hosting and having a discussion about this. And I think that's actually a real it was great that they were honest because I think this is a really good example that our system isn't working with how mm. we consult. Right? Mm. It's just, it's too hard. It's, it's the language we use and the form it's in. It doesn't mean we don't have those technical, technical documents there. It's how we can also make it more accessible mm. for people to participate. Yeah, I, um, that, that's been a recurring message. Even James Shaw in his opening, he, he made references both to sort of citizen participation, complementing, for example, the Nelson Tasman Climate Forum, but he also was critical of the tendency of central and local government to impose top-down information. This is what we want you to think and talk about rather than explore from the bottom up, which I think is fitting better with what you're describing in a way. Absolutely. The thing is, though, it's not funded. Good yeah. consultation really isn't funded, and it it will take take resources because it takes mm. people to do that. So you you need to there needs to be people who are paid to put this into plain language to put this into yeah. And so it's just not funded. It's not well resourced. Mm. And I think this is actually one of the key things councils in particular, and I really like governments to do this too, is look at how they engage with their communities at all levels and this mm. is going to be really important to get that social license to to work with people to mm. to really make this change happen so you know there's a number of ways you can do that there's lots of people who just can't get to those drop-in times at libraries or mm. for some reason are not going to be able to watch a, a webinar or take the 30 minutes to read a short, even a short document. So going to where people are can be really good. You know, mm. and a classic example is, you know, this isn't necessarily climate related, but if you, you know, if a council was going to plan a new uh, playground, mm. how about just go to the local playgrounds and ask the parents who are there? great consultation way of doing it because mm. those people are there already they're watching the kids but they can probably you know answer a few questions and you know don't have to take the time to get it in by a certain time you know, that's a way of making it safer for them too can, can i just mention a, a great example i think of the same sort of thing there's a nelson-based organization called nelsust which focuses on sustainable transport and no a couple of months ago they or we because i'm in the group ran an event which focused basically on active transport and, and 
uh, ended at the cathedral steps in Nelson, where one of them had the enlightened idea of preparing a huge map with pins that people could put in for hazard areas. And all these cyclists put in these little pins and said, that area, and then wrote down, this is an area where I'm always terrified going across this intersection or whatever it was, which is another case in, in many ways. It's not exactly consultation, but it's grassroots sort of involvement, isn't it? Yeah, but that's also one of the things I wanted to, a great example, one of the things I want to talk about as well, because our councils aren't trusted by everyone, right? Mm, mm. So partnering with local community groups and, and different organisations like NALSIS, like those who represent some of the more bar- marginal of our communities, mm. who just do not have time, all the different groups of people, if you partner with those, they can ask those questions and it's in a safer way for those people and you're more likely to get more honest answers. You know, the council doesn't always have to be in the room when these questions are asked. No, right? that's right, yeah. Good and you, I think... That way is, you know, potentially get a much more, much more information and much mm. better, clearer picture of the needs across our community, not just of a few people, but of more of who our community, how our mm. community is. And presumably that would in turn lead to better buy-in from the community because, A, they, they feel an ownership of the process to a greater degree. Would that be fair comment? Yeah, absolutely. And especially if you don't just, if the councils don't just go in when they've got something. Mm. But actually going into those community groups and saying, what do you need? We need to do something about climate change. What do you think about it? And, and, and having them as part of the direction, early direction, mm. because that's when we come back to talking about those unintended consequences like the, of, the, of a disabled community. If you're there at the start, we can save a lot of time mm. by, by cutting to things that, you know, that, that people already know. That we've got a huge amount of wealth in our communities, a huge amount of history. You know, our tangata whenua is... You know, they have this amazing intergenerational um, mm. wealth of information. And so do you know, many people have lived in our communities for generations. Yes. They know their communities well. So there's a huge opportunity there to hone in and focus on the solutions that are going to work. Oh, they're great. going to have buy-in with their communities. Mm. Thank you, Olivia. We'll have to draw this to a close, but before we do so, one of the things I love about having someone like you as a guest is that I can invite you to share with us what would be your own top take-home message in this arena for listeners generally, but particularly in terms of this series of those wanting to factor climate change into their thinking on the coming local government elections. Over to you. Thank you, Lindsay. Well, I think go back to the puzzle analogy. I think we need to build our pictures of climate change, and I think the best way we can do that is by talking about it. Mm. We just don't talk about climate change. Climate activists and, and advocates and scientists talk about it all the time. But you know what? It's easy for me, easy for me to come and talk to you, Lindsay, here. Yeah, on this good podcast point. that might be listened to, I don't know how many people, then it is often to talk about it with my family and friends. And I'm a climate expert. Mm. But I actually find it difficult talking to family and friends. Welcome to the club. I'm the same. Yeah, we pretty much all are, you know. And that comes back to Catherine Hayhoe's book again. And she mm. outlines for lots of different reasons on how, how to do this. But it's also because we've also got a lot of feelings about it, right? Mm. And some of these feelings aren't great. They're uncomfortable. Yes. 
most of us are worried about climate change. And, you know, the mental health thing is a real issue, you know. And I think many people will be able to, who are listening will be able to re- re- relate. I have to work actively to protect my mental health. Yes, um, yeah. And I'm sure you do too, Lindsay. Mm. And I do that with sharing and having a support network. I've got trusted friends who mm. know, you know, mm. who I know will just be, you know, really supportive. And the other key thing is doing something about it. Mm. That really helps. And this is a key thing to me, for me personally, and for many parents, is this also helps our kids. If they see adults around us taking action, it helps reduce their anxiety. I am Mm. really concerned about our kids and anxiety Mm. and mental health for them. And it's a key driver for me. So I want to know when my kids are old enough to really understand how the, the the crisis that we're in, that there is a lot of hope because there's a lot of people doing the best they can. And that is that goes for not just the kid, our kids' parents, that goes for everyone in our community, our leaders in our community, like our, mm. like our counsellors. And we don't lead by not talking about it. Olivia, that's, that's a wonderful, um, even if it's a challenging note to end on, it's a wonderful note to end on. We're going to have to finish there, I'm sorry. So I just want to Thank you so much for a really stimulating conversation. As you know, I could go on for ages. So thanks so much for joining us and and chipping in your expertise on this great series. Well, I just love the ongoing unfolding of different viewpoints and different insights and everything and the wonderful expertise our guests are bringing to this series. And Olivia Hyatt's contribution was no exception. I really liked in particular the way she bridged both sides of the debate On the agricultural section, she showed real empathy for the plight of farmers having to change, having to cope with loads of regulations. And on the other side, she also recognised that change has to happen. You can't avoid it with the climate crisis the way it is. Now, I always give you listening options for the series. You can listen to the full interview with each guest on their own podcast by linking to these from my firm's website, which is www.resilience.co.nz. That is R-E-S-I-L-I-E-N-Z, resilience.co.nz. And there you'll find not only links, but a whole lot of information about the series if you want more information. The the podcasts go up on Spotify and on Apple and other main platforms, so you should be able to access them there. And as always, I want to give a big shout out to Kahu Sanson Burnett, who's invaluable in doing the sound tech work and in getting it up to the podcast platforms. And of course, a big shout out to you, our listeners. Thank you so much for joining what is a really important discussion. As mentioned, we just have one more expert to join us this in this series, and that is no less than the remarkable Professor Bronwyn Hayward, who has a truly incredible pedigree. And Bronwyn will be summing up in the theme, So What Does All This Mean? I hope I enjoy your company again for that. And as always, kia kaha for the climate.